Stop it! Don't open that door! Before we get started, we want to let you know that this episode does contain spoilers for What Remains of Edith Finch, both in the interview with Ian Dallas and the conversation about the game that follows. If you haven't played the game yet, we recommend giving it a playthrough and then come back and enjoy the episode afterwards. Don't worry, we'll wait up for you. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Masters of Unlocking, a different kind of video game podcast, and this a different kind of episode. We are different generally because we tend to delve into the business, economics, and psychology of video games. We are different today because rather than co-host VG Collectaholic and I waxing nerdily about video games, you, dear listener, will be gifted the lovely voice of Ian Dallas, creative director at Giant Sparrow. Now, I will not apologize for being a bit of a fanboy during this interview. Keep in mind that Ian Dallas, along with his Giant Sparrow team, is responsible for an incredible video game, one that changed how I, an author of five books and an English literature degree holder, how I think about the very idea of narrative. Imagine if Neil deGrasse Tyson suffered a head injury, and suddenly those stars he looked up to with so much awe now look to him like so much dandruff caught amid the coarse bramble of a god's black-as-night sky because it is a night sky head. And I understand in that analogy I compared myself to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I apologize for that. We talk about what remains of Edith Finch, Giant Sparrow's second game, with a focus on the game's literary inspirations and motivations. We talk about how development and hardware limitations can actually breed creativity, and we talk about how an English degree can make a certain video game podcast co-host see things that probably aren't there. After my interview with Ian Dallas, co-host Scott and I will talk about our recent playthrough of what remains of Edith Finch. Stick around for that for sure. And with that, enjoy your time with Ian Dallas. I'm here with Ian Dallas, creative director at Giant Sparrow, the company behind 2012's The Unfinished Swan and 2017's What Remains of Edith Finch. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Ian. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, so I'm super excited to talk with you, and I hope this conversation will be um, exciting to you, too, uh, because we're going to talk about books, and uh, books seem to influence your games quite heavily. Is that fair? Uh, Yeah, 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 absolutely. So What Remains of Edith Finch is superficially a first-person narrative adventure game about a 17-year-old girl who returns to her childhood home to learn about the curse that has killed every other member of her family. Uh, But deeper, the game is really about the power of narrative. I mean, the game's literary inspirations are literally lining the bookshelves throughout the Finch home. So my first question is just talk to me a little bit about that inspiration. You know, why books? Yeah, so the game originally started off as a scuba diving simulator. Uh, and the the premise was looking at what it feels like to be in a situation where you encounter the sublime. So something that is simultaneously beautiful and overwhelming. And initially, you know, like I said, that was the scuba diving simulator. But when I looked around at other uh, you know references out there for things that uh, you know I felt like evoked that sense of the sublime, a lot of the references were short stories, and uh, particularly in the genre called weird fiction. 
that you know kind of comes from the 1930s, people like H.P. Lovecraft, but then you know eventually sort of morphs into uh, magical realism with people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude and uh, Borges, who wrote a ton of short stories about labyrinths and libraries, which is like obsessed with libraries, uh, and he himself worked in a library. And so, you know, I think that the books are feature prominently in those stories, and then they themselves, you know, the references are stories. And, you know, I think that gets to, um, you know, this question of the intelligibility of the universe. And, you know, ultimately, when you encounter the sublime, part of what makes that a feeling that you, you can't, your brain can't quite contain is that it's sort of pushing at the limits of your understandability. And I think that's what stories are, is a way for us to take something that is unknowable and to digest it a little bit and to you know, kind of wrap our heads around it. But I think it's really important to be aware at the same time that that is an artifice, that we are trying to understand this thing, but we have not actually succeeded entirely. We've just like, you know, it's like the three blind men and the elephant, you know, they've each got a different perspective on it. And that was something that we tried to highlight in What Remains of Edith Finch by making the narrative itself so foregrounded. So you hear Edith telling these stories, but then you very consciously hear you know, each of the Finch family members telling their own stories. You know, so you're getting into this tale within tale structure, which is also something that is uh, pretty common in the references that we are drawing on. And then, you know, given this, you know, kind of obsession with narrative and stories and the problems and delights of trying to condense something into a human understandable form, you know, made a lot of sense to litter the Finch house uh, in a very concrete way with all of these books, which is the most overt way you know, that, that the stories make their way into the player's mind. So first of all, the idea of, of the sublime and, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the magical realism, and I would also probably fold that into the idea of the grotesque. And so, the idea that you would uh, – when you first see the house, for example, I mean, you're surrounded by this lush foliage. Um, and I've heard you say in other interviews that you kind of wanted the interior of the house to take on an almost organic feel to it. You know, the bark of trees, I think, was one of the terms that you had used. And you, you definitely sort of – you start literally uh, kind of in uh, – surrounded by trees and surrounded by this lush, lush foliage. And you're already, I think, uh, as a human being, somewhat overwhelmed by that because that is very natural and it's very beautiful and part of the sublime is really being overtaken by by nature in in a way that um you know it, it's it's awe inspiring um so when you first see the house i thought that was such an interesting visual because the construction of the house itself almost defies logic it, you look at it and you think that's <laughs> that's not supposed to stand up that way that's not how houses work uh but you see it just sort of jutting from the horizon um, in a very stark, crazy way. And then when you finally get into the house, you see these books everywhere and these books, you know, they're just f overflowing. And it's it's such a, an, an amazing visual image to get. And as I was playing through this this game, um, me being the absolute uh, nerd that I am when it comes to books and things like that, I, I immediately got the sense of Borges. I mean, Borges was immediately something that, that spoke to me. Um, <laughs> it was it was insane. I, I played through the entire game one time and then I thought, wow, this this I, I feel Borges with this. I feel Mark Z. Danielewski's and his, his House of Leaves, you know, the way that the house sure. almost yeah, yeah, feels bigger. The original end of the game was going to be like a complete riff on House of Leaves and I spent six months trying to make that story work and then abandoned it and went a completely different way. But originally it was going to be 
100% House of Leaves. Okay, well, so let me ask this. As a House of Leaves fan, then, it did it irritate you just a little bit that the assets, the book spine assets, there were many spines of those books that were thinner than House of Leaves would be? You know, just for the sake <laughs> of having to have all of those assets, obviously, you couldn't do that. Was there a little part of you that was like, come on, we, we can make this real-life thickness. Come on, guys. Yeah, I mean, that part of me died uh, several <laughs> years ago. Uh, because by the time, I mean, everything in game development is a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Like you, the whole team wants things that they p- can't possibly have. And it's the tech director's job to be, you know, <laughs> the kind of stingy parent on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve deciding what they get. And by the time, you know, we had, we had asked for and gotten so many amazing things, uh, from our, our programmers that, you know, it was like a month or something before we were supposed to ship the entire game. And we asked like, could we please be able to randomize all the book spines so that we could have, you know, like a thousand different titles instead of whatever we had at the time, like a hundred, you know, where like it would work, but then you would see the same title duplicated all over the place. And so for them to, you know, go out of their way and give us the ability to have whatever it was, like a thousand titles, uh, I was already so thankful that to ask like, oh, and by the way, could you, you know, also make it the thickness uh, that that was, you know, a bridge too far. But and even now, like if you look, you can find duplicates. But it, you know, it's it's much better than it used to be. There's not going to be too many people like me that I think will look that deeply into <laughs> it. So yeah, Infinite Jest is the one that people usually call out. It's like there's no way because they're looking at the shelf right next to them where they have this unfinished Infinite Jest that uh, is mocking them. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Um, so let me take a step back and just kind of ask in general, like, why don't you think there has been as much discussion about the books found in the game? Oh, um, I mean, I think there, there's there been more than I would have expected. Really? Like, yeah, just a few days ago on Twitter, I saw somebody post a, uh, a link to a compendium that they had made of all of the books that appear in the Finch house, along with links to buy them on Amazon, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty enterprising of them. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't expect necessarily that people that play movies or play, play games rather would, uh, would also read books. I mean, I would hope that that would be the case, but you know, I, I think, um, you know, especially something like Borges, I don't really know where people encounter Borges in average life, but I think that very few people these days, you know, reach, the age of maturity, uh, you know, probably having a good experience of Borges and, uh, and, and Marquez. But w- where did you find Borges? Uh, in college, I have a, uh, an English degree. So, um, of course, that's the most pretentious response ever. Of course, I f- found Borges <laughs> in college. Why, why wouldn't I? Um, but yeah, yeah, in college, uh, writing. And so, um, well, first of all, I, I don't want to leave this point real quick because uh, I don't want to crush your uh, your positive thoughts about uh, game players in this world, but that compendium you <laughs> mentioned was actually mine. Uh, I actually did that. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there's still only one of us out there, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, very I, I posted it to the rest of the team on our Slack channel. Oh, nice, nice. But yeah, it was uh, it was college, um, but one of the really heavy themes was uh, in, uh, in What Remains of Edith Finch is the idea that birth is essentially killing someone and a birth can be murdered in a way, you know, I mean, to, to put it not so lightly. Um, and that was a theme that I wrestled with a lot in college. And, and my first book was actually written about that. And so the, the, the idea that I can sort of play and, uh, and, and interact with this environment that does that, 
um, really spoke to me. And, and, and I don't want to fanboy out too much here, but um, it's a, an amazing game, so I'll probably continue to do that a little bit. But um, <laughs> the one thing that I guess maybe you can also you know take back to your team is that um, me being someone who's who's been in love with literature my entire life, has a degree in it, has written many books, like what remains of Edith Finch actually taught me how to look at literature kind of in a different way or have even a different kind of respect for it, which uh, I was not expecting by jumping into a game. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. I mean, I think, uh, you know, our, our aim is really not to teach anyone anything, <laughs> but to give them an experience that helps them to see things from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. So if you learned anything, I would say all of the credit goes to you on that. <laughs> uh, spoken like a true auteur. Um, so uh, most of the books in the house kind of fall into four categories. Uh, the cooking books, mythology books. You've got some literary works there with kind of a focus on metafiction narratives and things like that. And then also education books with a focus on homeschooling. Um, and, you know, taken together, we're to see a family that's proudly self-sufficient while favoring myth over hard science. How should the player interpret this fairly narrow topic range, especially considering how many books there are in the house, um, when they're deciding for themselves the validity of the Finch family curse? Uh, well, I think the categories that you describe, you know, are, are basically our ham-fisted way of trying to make a few points for players, uh, which I would break out as, you know, here's like the references that the game is drawing on. So that's like your Borges and your House of Leaves and, you know, King in Yellow and all these things that sort of make up this like a suggested reading list mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, kind of where we are coming from. And then the cookbooks were an attempt for us. Like when we started making the game, we uh, we had three words that we gave to the team that everyone was you know, trying to keep in their mind about like, what is, how do you describe this game to someone? And those three words were sublime, intimate, and murky. And the intimate part of that we described as being kind of like the feeling you get when you listen to an episode of This American Life mm -hmm. uh, on NPR, that you feel like the presence of humans and that someone is actually living here. And so things like having cookbooks uh, were a way, especially cookbooks that suggest certain kind of cooking or a certain locale or ingredients or perspective, uh, was a way for us to you know, kind of advance that goal of making it feel intimate. That you're, you're getting a peek into, you know, what this person's life might be like. And then the homeschooling stuff was, uh, you know, all those books were really just our, our very ham-fisted way of trying to emphasize that Edith's mother was a teacher and that she had homeschooled her as part of this you know, very insular world that she had created uh, where, you know, everything kind of takes place inside the house because we don't really make that point until very late mm -hmm. that uh, if you're, you're learning so much about the history of the family before you were alive. Uh, and so by the end of the game, when you do learn about Edith's own history, you know, people are kind of looking for the exit. It's like the last you know, couple of minutes of, of the experience. And so the, um, the homeschooling books are just a way for us to thread that through, uh, you know, because there are, so many things happening in this game. There are 13 different characters uh, in the Finch family they are introduced to, and you have to keep these things straight. We made an effort to repeat ourselves as much as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so if there was a point we wanted people to understand, you know, we tried to have several different places at different times, you know, where that piece of information, you know, like for example, a character's name or their birth date uh, or their their job. Mentioned. Let me talk a little bit about then some of the gaming conventions. I mean, above above all, this is a game, you know, um, yeah. of course, you know. And how important was it for you to maintain a sense of traditional 
game conventions in this somewhat unconventional game. Those those traditional gaming conventions being, uh, you know, level design, or in this case, maybe house design, and how that offers a sense of progression, or uh, the fact that the game's MacGuffin is a key, which is literally one of the <laughs> oldest, oldest tropes in adventure gaming ever. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about how important it was to make sure that you still maintained those conventions while trying to trying to offer a higher message or a different message. Yeah, I think this is something that comes out of our first game, The Unfinished Swan, which takes place initially, at least, in a totally white landscape. And, you know, one of the things that we learned from that experience was that in order to create a space where players felt like they had the opportunity to explore and felt empowered to go off and, you know, kind of find things out for themselves, it paradoxically was really helpful to give them a very clear objective because once they knew where they were supposed to be going they could then deviate from the path that they wanted to and they were kind of making a choice about that where you know on the other hand when we had levels which happened in both the entrance one and edith finch that were you know kind of had confusing or unclear objectives mm-hmm. players spent a lot of time floundering and being very frustrated about trying to find out where they're supposed to go. And then, you know, either they, when they did learn where they're supposed to go, they had already kind of explored the things that they would have otherwise taken the time to explore, but had done it in kind of a rushed mindset, or they had just sort of exhausted themselves. <laughs> like, you know, think about them as being like a drowning person where, you know, when you're trying to save the drowning person, you're not even supposed to get close to them because they'll just pull you down with them and they're flailing. So you just want to throw them like a life preserver. And that was, you know, what we tried to do with something like the key that you have or, you know, knowing that, that Edith lives at the top of the house and having the sense of like, okay, I have this giant house. I'm probably going to get to the top of the house someday. Uh, you know, these very standard game conventions was our attempt to get the lizard main part of the player's mind to shut off and, you know, let them kind of, feel at peace exploring the world at their own pace. In The Unfinished One, more so, there's blocks of text. There's sort of these chapter mm-hmm. sections almost. Um, these blocks of text that specifically slow the, the player down a little bit. It's not necessarily the, the goal in the distance necessarily, but it is a way to slow the player down a little bit and pro- perhaps force them to take in the, the, the setting and this, this, the scene, scenery a little bit more. With What Remains of Edith Finch, it's shorter snippets of text, but more often presented. Um, is, was it kind of the same mentality there where you wanted readers... You wanted people to kind of slow down a little bit? Yeah, I think the blocks of text serve different functions uh, depending on, you know, where they're placed and what the problems were. At the most, you know, kind of heavy-handed version of it, we would grab the player's camera and force them to look where the text is to, you know, make sure that they don't miss something. If we've seen a lot of playtests where people get very frustrated, then that was kind of the lesser of two evils and ended up being something that we could sprinkle in very late in development which when you're making a game you have this you know kind of very frustrating situation where towards the end of development as you see people playing the more and more final game you have a better sense of what the problems are but you have a vanishingly small amount of time in which to fix them and the ways in which you can fix those problems also become very constrained because you don't want to like add memory to your levels or you don't want to like redo collision volumes or all these things that the programmers are saying, no, 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 we can't do that. And the text uh, placement was a way for us to very flexibly adjust and fine-tune those things. Um, so it was a way for us to uh, encourage players or force them 
to look at places and also a way in, in both games to give players a sense of a reward, which can be a little challenging in a game that doesn't have you know, an explicit uh, user interface for most of it. Like there's no collectible that you get that says like, all right, three out of seven, I'm you know, <laughs> almost halfway there to whatever my goal is. And again, going back to that kind of lizard brain part of the player, having these periodic uh, little hits of dopamine, you know, just lets them relax, I think. And it, it seems strange, but you know, enjoy the kind of lazy pace of things if they've got these, you know, little bits of, oh, right, I see text, I must be going the right way. Um, and in a lot of cases, the text would have uh, multiple locations that would be triggered based on where the player was looking. So this is kind of the opposite of the heavy-handed, let's grab the camera and force them to look somewhere. Uh, you know, in other places, we would put three or four different versions of the text, and depending on where the player was looking, you know, spawn the text in the appropriate location to make it feel like, oh, wow, it just happened to be right where you were looking. Was there a fear that that uh, approach may force a linearity that the walking simulator genre or, you know, as it is presented right now so far, um, kind of tries to fight against, you know, was that was there a fear that what looks to be sort of this explorative open world game um, to some degree uh, would would you, the the player would eventually see it for what it is and that it is a fairly <laughs> linear story. Um, it, was there w- Were there tricks that you would use to sort of avoid that or did you just sort of embrace the fact that, hey, you are telling a fairly linear, each each section, I guess each story is fairly linear and the way that you get to those each of those individual stories is also fairly linear? We flirted with having a more open world feel at the beginning of development and then realized that that was just a ton of work that we didn't necessarily want to bite off. Like it, it wasn't where this game was going to be amazing. Uh, so we ultimately created a fairly straightforward path that, you know, specifically disallows backtracking. I think that was something that we had a lot of discussion about on the team. So for example, when you first go into the doggy door, there was a really uh, a vicious argument between different departments for a while about whether or not you should be allowed to go back out the doggy door, uh, you know, and to explore the outside. And most of us were of the opinion that you should be able to go back outside, but because of streaming issues uh, and the game, you know, most players would never think about how much is going on under the hood, you know, but we're constantly streaming in new areas or new stories and throwing out, you know, the old stories to make room in memory and to avoid loading times. So that was a major issue for us throughout development, uh, trying to section off these areas. So that was also part of the push towards a more linear experience was just kind of recognizing what our tech would allow. Uh, and then you know, in the end, it just didn't feel like it really was that important for the experience. Like it, it was something that you know, if you thought about it, oh, yeah, if you ask a new player, sure, they, they want it to be as open as possible. But there's a lot of downsides to that with people getting frustrated. And, you know, most people will be fine. But then, you know, like 25% of people, for example, uh, you know, will go back from Edie's room back into Molly's room and then back into uh, Walter's bedroom and then have a terrible time you know, where they <laughs> then spend an hour looking around the house trying to figure out where to go. And so you know, as a game designer, you're just trying to balance out, well, 
you know, how worthwhile is it for 75% of people to have a feature that they probably will never use, but will think is kind of a nice thing about being more open versus, you know, 25% of players who will have a horrible experience and probably, you know, quit the game, at least for that evening. And, you know, we just opted to have everybody, you know, have a better experience or, you know, like trying to have fewer people have a terrible experience. I guess, <laughs> it's it's so funny you say that. Uh, I did. Uh, so being the avid gamer that I am, I know that if the game is telling you to go right, you go left because there's secrets. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. Sure. And so yeah. I thought I thought myself very clever by first going to the doggy door. Right. That's that's where the game mm-hmm. doesn't want me to go. Let me go there. And uh, as soon as I went in the doggy door, I thought, but now I want to see what's on the wh- where the game was trying to lead me. Let me turn around and try to go out the door. And of course, you can't there, and it makes absolute sense that you can't. Um, however, through subsequent playthroughs, I was able to sort of explore the front porch and kind of see what's going on there. Um, but that's <laughs> that's really interesting that you bring that up as a specific example because I absolutely fell into that uh, trap, so to speak. Having watched, you know, and listened to you know, maybe a dozen or a hundred players play through the opening sequence. Uh, yeah, no, we definitely, we've seen players exactly like you that, you know, are the ones who are like, let me just probe the edges of this before I go in the front door, which is probably where I'm supposed to go with this, this key. And then, yeah, it's just kind of a shitty experience to hear, uh, you know, or to find out like, oh, this game, it's, it's one of those games. I think that's what, uh, <laughs> Lucas, the developer of, uh, Papers, Please said literally after that happened. He's like, oh, yeah, this is, one of those games where they won't let you go back through doors, even though it makes no sense. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, our tech director made a very compelling case for why our streaming system couldn't support this. That's fantastic. So, kind of rolling more with some of the some of the literary themes and everything. You know, the the epistolary format of the is very much a literary device. It's very much a, a device uh, rooted in literature, the letter writing sort of as narrative. Um, and I sense that when you were, in some ways, when you were creating this game, you were almost creating it in some ways for for readers, um, or maybe that's just my my little hope there. But you know that a reader may a, a traditional sort of reader who may not necessarily play games too much might say, you know, finally this is a game for me. You know, <laughs> what were you kind of hoping maybe a, a gamer would say who who is not so much a reader? Um, you know, I don't think that we were really approaching it in those terms, thinking about potential players as being you know players or readers or, or or anything along those lines for me it gets more to what is the experience being a reader as a child certainly but then also as an adult reading something like Borges like how does it feel to read a book what is it that I love about these stories not only the content of for example a Borges short, a short story but you know the feel of seeing the words and turning the pages and the way in which these pictures are painted in your mind. And so much of it is about, in Borges, you know, these ideas, uh, you know, Borges and Lynch too, David Lynch, uh, the director, and uh, and Boone Well, take ideas and continually repurpose them uh, across stories, like within stories and across them. And so when you run into a library in Borges or a labyrinth or, you know, a knife fight or something you know that it's kind of part of that fabric and that was something that we tried to you know embed into Edith Finch as well not explicitly thinking about you know how do we make this thing be more literary but just looking at the source materials and saying what is it that I love about these references and how can we make a video game 
equivalent to that? Like, what is it that is effective, and you know, how could a video game do something similar? There's an article that was uh, published uh, back in uh, back at the release of What Remains of Edith Finch in the Atlantic, and I know it's an article that uh, you've read. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have heard that you have read it. Uh, it was an article by Ian yeah. Bogost, um, and he's a he's a video game designer himself, but he wrote an article with the uh, I feel kind of clickbaity title: uh, "Video games are better without stories." But he asked a yeah. question in there that, that I felt was a, a reasonable question to ask. Um, I have certain issues with the article, um, but he does, a, he does ask a question I think is reasonable, and so I want to ask it to you. He asks, you know, why does the story of Edith Finch need to be told as a video game? Well, I think it doesn't. You could try and tell the story as a song, you know, or an epic poem or a painting or a comic book. It just so happens that I'm really interested in how video games can communicate experiences. And I'm not primarily interested in the story. I'm interested in the feeling of a video game or a walk in the park or you know any other experience in life and trying to make video games that express those feelings. So yeah, I, I think you could try to do a different version and it would be you know a completely different thing. But I think the way that the video game version of this tale exists uh, is uniquely specific uh, in in what is effective and how that works that for example in calvin's story part of you know a big part of the appeal is the confusion that you have as a player not being told what your buttons do and having a, a moment to experiment with what your buttons do puts you into a playful mindset and I think that is very important to experience that story. Being in that frame of mind, you could get people into that frame of mind with, you know, some sort of playful 2D hand-drawn animation version of the story. Uh, we just happened to do it in a video game, and those are the tools that we, we knew how to leverage. That is uh, quite a refreshing answer. I, I've, I've spoken with a lot of... Uh a lot of creators and uh, they all have their own different versions of trying to uh, uh, claim that their medium is the best medium for everything and anything. So it's, it's a, it's a refreshing <laughs> answer. Thank you for that. Um, so I, I want to ask, uh, I want to kind of steer a little bit toward maybe uh, uh, some of the, some of the actual, um, you know, literal stories within uh, what remains of sure. Edith Finch and ask a few things um, that, I don't know if these will have specific answers, and, and I don't necessarily claim that they should, but I, I think they're they're interesting ideas to ponder. Um, so as I was playing the game, uh, I kept thinking that Edith, you know, as the last surviving member of the Finch family, you know, she has this the, she has the ability to end the curse if she wanted to. I mean, simply put, she could not have a child, right? She could not have a child, and therefore the curse would be gone for as much as we understand of the curse anyway. Uh, but we learn, of course, that, that one of her motivations for returning to the house is that she is pregnant. And she is acutely aware that she's sort of doomed her child to death. Again, uh, trying, to not, trying to not say things too bluntly, but that's kind of what she's doing. Um, should, should the player, do you think, infer anything about her pregnancy, um, perhaps about the circumstances of her getting pregnant, in the sense that she is, she's in a position where she may not have wanted to be pregnant. I, 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 I hesitate to use the R word here, but is there anything <laughs> worth thinking about there? Oh, yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, I personally had never considered that it was um, 
something, you know, that had, had criminal connotations to it. Uh, you know, I guess I had, a, I had expected that it was probably not intentional. Um, you know, because a 17 year old woman in North America in the present day, you know, rarely gets pregnant intentionally. But even that, I think, is is open to interpretation. And, you know, looking at what her life has been like that you can see in the game in terms of, you know, a lot of people around her died early. And, you know, she had a, a fairly unstable home life for much of her 17 years. You know, being pregnant is not statistically super unlikely. Like, she's kind of in a high-risk category for that. So curse or no... You know, just looking at the demographic data, uh, <laughs> that's one of the least implausible occurrences, I would say, in, in the Finch family. Um, but we deliberately don't, you know, go into a lot of detail there, you know, just because I think it ultimately isn't relevant for the concerns that we're exploring in the game. Possibly one of the reasons why my head went that direction is, is we look at Christopher, you know, her her child. Um, I I always have to ask the question, you know, why would a creator choose this instead of this? So why choose a male uh, child as opposed to a female child? And I kind of saw Christopher as, you know, he, him sadly, um, unfortunately, just being more capable of controlling his progeny. He, he sort of represents the, the true ability to sort of to conquer the curse if he sort of wants to. He almost has more of a choice in it than, say, Edith possibly does. And so that's kind of where I was going with that. And I guess that leads to maybe a question where, um, you know, is there a happy ending, do you think, beyond the credits of, of what remains of Edith Finch? Yeah, I see it as not a sad ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say <laughs> it's an open one. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, we all we know about Christopher really is that he's had some kind of trauma recently that has, you know, resulted in, in him breaking an arm. Uh, in terms of his gender, that was a pragmatic concern in an effort to try to distinguish him from Edith. Mm. So, you know, because Edith is a woman, it just made a lot of sense for Christopher to not be a woman so that there would be less confusion about this character who, you know, you never really hear about. You only see briefly at the very beginning and the end. And that was really why he had a cast as well. We were just mm-hmm. trying to find something that could visually distinguish him enough for him to have a hope of being memorable enough for players to you know, think back, oh, yes, two hours ago I saw this fellow and here he is again. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the the life that Christopher has, I think it could go either way. He's, he's young enough that uh, he's, he's got a lot of choices still ahead of him. You have at the beginning the monster. I think in Molly's story, you have the monster coming up through the toilet. Uh, you have Gregory going kind of down through the drain. At the end, you have the birth of, of Christopher. And so you have all these little scenes that sort of the transition is, is almost like a, a spiritual type thing, moving from this dark area to a lighter area. Sure, while they're going through the tunnel. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I'm anticipating that that was kind of an intentional thing. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to burst your bubble on that. Uh, not intentional. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's impressive because I, I never, it had never occurred to me that all those stories had such similar, uh, you know, visual elements to them. I think, if anything, it's a lack of imagination on our part, maybe. Uh, but, you know, I think getting back to the, the question of, you know, the role of technical constraints on all these things, I think that is a big part of, how many decisions get made, particularly later on in development when your hands are tied in a lot of ways. But that is often a very positive thing because if you're working with 
some known quantities in terms of what are we trying to say here, what are the the references we're drawing on, and, and what are the things that feel totally appropriate, then when you're presented with three or four options, you know, instead of having a million options, you have three or four that you can do technically, then one of those will be, you know, you'll have a gut sense of, yeah, this is the one that speaks most to what this game is about. And it's a really liberating point in the development process when you have a well enough developed gut that you can make those decisions. And then you find the game, you know, it's always shaping itself. Uh, and a lot of the previous decisions that you have made have put you onto a path where, oh, we're really good at walking into the light or whatever technology is required to do that. And so you find yourself inadvertently repeating some of those elements. Um, but certainly the uh, situation of a character facing their own demise has uh, visual references in our culture with walking into the light. And I think that subconsciously, or in some cases consciously, that was responsible for the endings in those stories. That's incredibly interesting. And uh, yes, you did just destroy everything. I My entire English degree is worthless. I don't think that your, <laughs> your reaction is wrong necessarily, though. I think that the game as it exists now is something stranger and more complicated than what I could have imagined. I had an idea of what this game was going to be, but then... Yeah, there are 15 of us working for four years uh, at various stages on this, and a lot of people put pieces of themselves into this game, and it developed in ways that I no longer remember or understand. And so there are a lot of different readings. I don't think there's the one reading that, as a creative director, I have on the game, because that reading isn't even accurate. Like, I have a vision of the game as it was going to be, but it's not that. It's, it's a different thing at this point. I, it's interesting too the uh, the idea of sort of avoiding uh, no, I should I shouldn't say avoiding of um, not uh, giving absolute context or absolute affirmation to various theories about the game and uh, the book the 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 game itself um, talks about this quite a bit or, or at least alludes to this quite a bit that the idea that once something is written down it becomes permanent and therefore it becomes something that um, you know, almost must be honored. Um, and, and, and also by the same token, though, writing something down allows you to control it a bit and maybe um, not be so scared of it. So the idea of this curse being out there and being sort of intangible, it becomes much less scary if you write it on paper and you can kind of control it in that way and you can decide what exactly it is that's killing people. You know, did Molly, was she killed actually by a monster that uh, came out from under or came out from the toilet and, and killed her or was she simply poisoned by some berries you know it's one of those things where um, one of those is less sexy and then one of those is just way more exciting and interesting um, and so I, I love that idea and so as we kind of round out this this uh, this interview a little bit I want to ask as a creator of the game you know how do you kind of deal with the thoughts of interviews of maybe restricting the players minds uh, by commenting on the game as you're kind of doing now in this interview is that anything you ever are concerned about do you overtly want to avoid giving concrete answers to things because you feel that may potentially ruin things this isn't to, of course to discredit the idea that you, <laughs> that you truly don't know and i totally get that um but is there an element where you truly don't want to necessarily uh pin something down and make something concrete yeah i actually find it very easy to talk about <laughs> because i myself don't have firm opinions about how you know these things happen. There's no 
one golden, you know, path that I have in my head about, oh yeah, Molly was definitely, you know, killed this way or that way. Personally, I, I would love to believe in a world where there is this tentacle monster that is responsible for her death. That, that seems like a much more, you know, interesting and magical place. And who's to say that, uh, that this, you know, video game world is not, you know, a one-to-one representation of our reality and, and is, you know, kind of its own, its own world where these things are possible. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, kind of the normal, um, coyness that a creator would have of, oh, it's just more interesting to let people decide these things for themselves and certainly a lot less work for us. But in this case, it's also very present in all of the references that we were looking at. I think this idea of not knowing for sure how these things happened is a core part of the message that there is no way to know the truth, that we are living in a universe that is more bizarre than we can possibly imagine. And so much of our life is spent denying that fact that I think it's a place for these kinds of stories to remind us of this kind of uncomfortable truth that we all know, but often don't admit to ourselves. So that was, in this case, I think a very central part of, of that message. Let me ask one more question. What is next for Giant Sparrow? Um, are you guys currently working on anything? Is Weird Al, has he accepted uh, your offer to do some <laughs> games with him? Uh, you know, I have actually been talking to Weird Al's manager a little really? bit. He reached out. Uh, I think Eurogamer someplace had a had a comment about my interest in... Uh, I really... If things had gone, uh, I don't know, better or worse on the on Edith Finch and we had had more time, I really would have loved to have a song in Edie's room about the time when she refused to uh, abandon the island that uh, was a Weird Al song on a record player that you could have played. So if there was ever, you know, a creative director's uh, cut of this game, I would love to get Weird Al for that. But uh, who knows for the next one if if, we're, if if there's a spot for Weird Al, I am interested. His manager seems to think that Weird Al will be interested. It's not impossible. Um, but the next game is is still very very early in development. The stage that we're at now is for me as the creative director taking a year or so off to study animation and become a better animator because the next game is going to be very focused on. Uh, movement and particularly the movement of animals. So I'm taking time to immerse myself in the histories and uh, techniques of animation to develop a better eye for that and uh, hopefully make a game that, uh, you know, is really about the way that, uh, that things move. So it's been, it's been wonderful talking with you. I can't thank you enough for this. Um, what Remains of Edith Finch has quickly become one of my very, very favorite games of all time. Um, I will continue to keep playing it and continue to keep seeing things in it that probably don't exist. But that's uh, that's the love that I have for this game. Uh, and I thank you again so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you so much for the uh, the great questions. And that was our conversation with Giant Sparrow creative director Ian Dallas. What a fascinating and erudite guy. And a great discussion, Caleb. Well done. Thank you. Uh, I would consider myself fascinating and a great discusser as well. So I'm glad two of us think that way. <laughs> what Ian Dallas just lucky to to be on the podcast with you? Yeah, it's very true. No, it was 
it was a lot of fun. Um, I am, uh, as, as if you might not have been able to tell from the interview, I'm overjoyed by the fact that I was able to speak with him, that he was able to give me his time. He was actually on his cell phone um, outside of a gym uh, to go into and, and work out. So he was kind of sitting in a car park. Um, and I would have felt really bad had something terrible happened to him. Because I don't know if it's the same where you are, but he, where I live, uh, you don't really want to be caught in a car park um, in the middle of the afternoon or at night. So... Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun though. A car park? Are you in London? Is that uh, what, what, a car? What am I? What am I trying to say? A parking the, the garage. Tower, thank you, parking garage. Is car park actually a London thing? I think it's like a British thing. Yeah. Huh. Where did I get that from then? Because I have no connection to Britain at all, or or Great or Lesser Britain. <laughs> I I have no connection. Yeah, I don't know. I it's. Uh... Sort of caught me off guard. Maybe maybe in different parts of the U.S. it is a car park. I don't know. No, no, it sure isn't. But anyway, enough of my Britishisms. Um, yeah, so the the now we're going to get to the part where we after the interview where we kind of just talk through our playthrough of the game and uh, and you know this I had been, I had played the game previously. Obviously, Scott, I believe you had played it um, just before recording this. So you're. Uh, thoughts and feels should be fairly fresh. Yeah, I just played it last weekend. It was a game you had it's been on my radar and I'd been waiting for the physical copy of it and um, we were actually supposed to both play it through a couple of episodes ago and uh, of course I I did not because I'm a loser and uh, <laughs> you cannot count on me for anything. So now I feel like you went out and you got this interview with, with Ian Dallas all lined up just so that you could goad me into playing what remains of Edith <laughs> Finch. And I have to say, well done, sir. Very ah, well yes. done. Well, I think that only means that the next interview I have to do is with the uh, creator of Colot. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. That's, yeah, that's got to be next. It, interestingly, since you had gotten me to try Colot, I've listened to like three different podcasts that talk about the the actual event that Colot is based on. And it just came, seems to keep coming up everywhere. So I think it's trying to tell me to go back and play the game, play the game. <laughs> Yep, that's probably what it is. <laughs> well, um, I, I tried to, I, I was going to ask Ian Dallas if he could um, call you a loser, um, just because I would love to have that soundbite. But uh, by the end of the interview, I was, I think, just too giddy with having talked to him and, and learned a lot about the game. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just talking to someone who likes books and literature and also video games and things was uh, just a really cool thing. So um, first things first, though, like, so you played the game. Um, I kind of want to know a little bit about, and, and I think, I anticipate, let me back up a little bit, and I anticipate some of this conversation will be me asking you a lot of questions just because I feel like you are the, you're, you're the one to be convinced, right? Like I already have the breadth of conviction um, already, and so I'm, I'm kind of wanting to feel out how your thoughts were about it. So maybe what I'll do is start by just asking, you know, did you have any preconceptions going into the game, um, uh, having heard about it, things like that before you went into it? What were those preconceptions? Well, my preconception, I tried to really avoid them as much as possible. I tried to be spoiler free. Um, I went into it. I didn't normally when I'm going into a game, I kind of look at the, the trophies kind of see how long it's going to take to beat the game, kind of see what the different trophies are um, just so that I have an idea of what I'm getting into. But with this game, I specifically tried to avoid that. Um, the really the only 
information I had about the game was from our conversation uh, an episode or two ago about uh, the the Atlantic article that you actually referenced in in the conversation with with Ian. So, mm-hmm. other than knowing that it was sort of a, a almost like a walking sim, almost like a, a mist type adventure game, and that it was very ambient. Um, in in its storytelling, I didn't really know anything about it whatsoever. Hmm. That's it. Do you feel like that uh, was the right way to go about it? I really do. I really do. Because um, I think you, you mentioned during the interview kind of exploring and dropping yourself into the, the forest and how the, the house emerges from the forest and um, that sort of triggering a sense of a connection to this isolation and, and this... Um, it, the the organicness of the house being tied to the forest and i think i definitely experienced that because the first when when you immediately start the game you walk down the path in the 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 driveway really and it splits off in two directions and one direction sort of it goads you this is the way this is the way the the path is supposed to go and then if you go off to the left you kind of go down this wandering path that looks like it's sort of crumbled away and goes down into what you think might be the deeper forest and so of course that was the path I chose because like (laughs) you you know you're always kind of traipsing around at the edges trying to explore everything before going down where you think the path where you think the game is guiding you and I think that just really set me in sort of this eerie mood and I wouldn't say the game is spooky. I wouldn't say the game is... I think maybe one preconceived notion that I had about the game was that it was going to be a little heavier on the spooky side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that is because of the kind of that iconic picture that you see a lot of mm-hmm. of, of the scene with just the swings, you know, the swing hanging there. Um, very still and stoic, and it's got kind of a sunset behind it and uh, uh, almost a dusk kind of atmosphere to it. And then a lot of the other pictures that you see have the the house outline kind of in, in silhouette on, on a background of, you know, a dark background. And to me, that just sort of said that the game was, I was in for something spooky. And then knowing that it was all about um, death and mystery of, of this family. So that really kind of turned it on its head because it, there really wasn't anything spooky about the game, which kind of, I, I guess I kind of enjoyed that. I kind of enjoyed being set up for one thing um, in what little I knew about the game and then having it go in a different direction. Yeah. I, I had a bit of a spooky vibe too, before I even came to it. Um, and I think I very quickly realized it wasn't going to be spooky necessarily. And I don't know why that was, but as I played the game more and more, um, I realized kind of the spookiest element was really just the idea of the curse itself. So throughout the entire game, you're, you're really just there to investigate uh, your family, the the last uh, vestiges of your family, and, and they're, all, they're all dead. So you're just kind of walking through the house and trying to pick up clues and learn more about your family because you're apparently part of this curse too and therefore you are subject to die at some point um, in probably horrific ways um, as many of the members of the family do um, but I I feel, felt like Edie, Edie Finch, the the matriarch the, the grandmother I think of the character you play as, um, perhaps great grandmother but I think just grandmother um, she seems like the spookiest one of all of them because she's almost the she's the one that I felt truly actually believed in the curse. 
And I felt like the rest of the characters had a strong enough head on their shoulders that they sort of dismissed it. Um, and, and especially the character you play as Edith Finch, uh, she just felt so confident and how she was walking around. She, she seemed so articulate, which would indicate to me, um, a, just a wealth of knowledge, just sort of an old soul, so to speak. And because of that, and because she wasn't necessarily scared ever, and she wasn't really freaked out, she had a solid, uh, a, a solid kind of disposition the entire game. I kind of felt it wasn't really going to go toward the spooky. She wasn't the character that was set up to be one that could be easily frightened or that would uh, be scared of really anything. I mean, there could have been a monster that came through, and I felt like she would have been like, "Yeah, who cares? So what?" Um, she was at the. She went to the house kind of on a mission. She, she, you, you learn this later in the game, but you, you, if you're, if you're aware of it, you will learn it early in the game. So this isn't really a spoiler, but Edith is pregnant. And so you realize that she is, uh, possibly, you know, she's going to give birth in this and essentially meaning that she would be giving birth to someone who is going to die if the curse is correct. And so I think that she was just so, so headstrong against the idea of a curse. Um, at least I felt so anyway, that she couldn't be scared by anything. I don't know if that makes any sense, but she just felt too confident for me to, for me to feel like it was going to be a horror movie. Yeah. And I think that confidence really carried over into, um, it carried all throughout the game. And, and it's so much so that I know that the character is, is supposed to be 17, but I really felt more like I was playing as, you know, someone who was maybe in the early thirties, someone who was gone through college, maybe gone through grad school. She sort of comes across as this, uh, I guess you sort of said it, a learned old soul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when it seems like the game is full of juxtapositions, and I think that that's just one of them that you're you're traipsing around is this 17 year old, and also a 17 year old who is sort of you know stereotypically dealing with an unexpected pregnancy, but then the entire aspect of who she is and how she's going about, and the ties back to her her family and and multiple generations of her family and her interest in finding out about the family seem much more like the much more like someone who is you know 10 15 years older than that Mm -hmm. yeah and at the same time it's crazy that the the game was able to show you that um though edith finch was this old soul she's wizened she is probably beyond superstition uh which i would i would categorize the idea of a curse into superstition but the game never really confirms or denies that there is in fact a curse it's kind of open to the player's interpretation but from playing as edith i would i would imagine that she doesn't buy into the curse idea but it's what's interesting is though she doesn't buy into it just the fact that she's come back to learn more about it tells us that she's a little bit scared that maybe her child is going to die um also, the fact that I that she's writing these things down, she's writing these thoughts down, and one of the themes of the of the game is that you know an idea becomes concrete, a curse, for example, becomes concrete when it's written down, when it's transcribed, when it's able to be passed on through generations, like a book or like literature, like a legend of sorts. So once it's written down, that's sort of almost dooming you uh, to to falling into to being part of the curse and she's writing this document uh throughout the time uh each time you learn a story of one of your family members and their death she kind of draws their picture in this journal that she has um or i this the picture is drawn in this journal um and so it's kind of interesting to see that she simultaneously is scared of it she's wary of it but at the same time she seems like she doesn't kind of believe in it um, and that's just really, it was really nuanced the way that that was played. And I, I thought that was great. It's interesting too, just the way she's, she, 
not just finding about out about their deaths, but she's finding out about who they are and what drives each of these members of her family. And and I guess maybe she not so much as it's being revealed to you as the player. And mm-hmm. it's sort of so recently I've been getting into this whole ancestry dot com thing, right? My my family for Christmas got a bunch of different family members ancestry DNA, and I signed up for the ancestry.com account and i've been going through and doing like my my family tree and going back generations and generations and so this part of the story actually really really spoke to me and really touched home with me and more so even because edith's family actually came to what is presumably the u.s um from norway and that's and my family came from norway too so i have this sort of connection and this um affinity for kind of what she's going through and uncovering things about her past and learning about different um, layers of of her I guess family story and I feel like the the curse is really just a um, I agree I think it's 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 allegory um, even in terms of of the story itself uh, but I think it's the vehicle then for her to become interested in and and uh, explore her family history. Yeah, it's like if you know Edie. Going back to her, the matriarch, she is uh, she's a what I would call just kind of a crazy person. Um, at least, I mean, you never meet her. You only like really read about her. But um, it's interesting because she, like any grandmother, is basically uh, you know if if your grandmother when you were young told you that there's monsters under your bed, you would probably believe it. And there for the rest of your life, you would have this uh, until you became, you know, old enough to know better. Um, you would have this inkling that there are monsters under your bed and that you could be killed by a monster at any point. And um, there was one element in the in the game that just kind of really hit home. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but when you first approach the front of the house, um, you can go to the left to go into the through the garage, the doggy door in the garage, mm-hmm. or you can go right and try to go in the front door. If you go further right so around the front of the house there's a little swamp area kind of in the front of the house. And in that swamp area is a slide in the shape of a dragon. Um, and it's just kind of sitting there. It's broken down. It's kind of rusty and gross. Later, when you get to Edie's room, uh, you find uh, a newspaper clipping, I think it is, or or something that talks about uh, her, uh, a, one of the family members getting killed by a dragon. Mm-hmm. And Edith mentions, you know, to my, to Edie, that would have been, this, that would have been the story, but really a, a dragon-shaped slide fell on him. And that right there, I think, is meant to expose the player to the idea that all of the curses, is, it's really just uh, that there's every death has a, a an interesting story associated with it if you want to make the story interesting, but it also has a logical reason for it. Um, one of uh, a probably more concrete example is one of the first character stories that you learn is Molly. And she, uh, you know, she eats uh she it's it's late at night she's locked in her bedroom um presumably she was in trouble or something and so she went to bed without dinner that old trope uh she's in her bed very hungry and she's asking her mom can i have can i have food and her mom's saying nope go to bed so she tries to look for food herself so first she eats her guinea pig's food it's like a carrot or something and she's still hungry she eats toothpaste she's still hungry finally she eats some berries from the windowsill um, and shortly after she turns into a cat and then she turns into an owl and then she turns into a shark that rolls down a hill and then she turns into a monster that eats people. Um, ultimately, this monster comes into her own room and eats herself. So it's this weird cyclical thing. But the real story is probably that she ate poison berries and died. Um, but the fun, more sexy story is that she 
uh, you know, that she, uh, that, that, uh, a, a monster ate her um, or killed her in her sleep. So that's the kind of thing in every single story. There's a logical reason for the death, but then there's also the magical, more fun reason to believe in every death. And I think Ian touched on this in the interview too, where you you touched, you brought up the subject of oral tradition and mm-hmm. oral, you know, like epic poetry almost, where you look back at a lot of the epic poems, whether it's uh, the Odyssey or Beowulf and, or even something like uh, that's less uh, oral story like uh, King Arthur. And you can always see sort of the undertones of a historical story that may have may have played out underneath it embellished with allegory and mystique so that people remember them and continue to tell them and and that could be a vehicle that that Edie as the grandmother and uses to sort of tell the family story and keep it fresh in in especially the young young generation's mind yeah you you make up a good point this might lead into sort of the next part of the conversation which is how how much that conversation with Ian could have and maybe did, though I don't want to necessarily believe it, uh, broken down some of the magic, you know, sort of revealed the wizard behind the curtain to some degree, because he did specifically say, I believe it was during that interview, um, or perhaps another one that I read of him, but he specifically addresses that he doesn't know what happened to Molly. Um, Yeah, so knowing that the director, creative director, doesn't know what happened to Molly kind of takes away the hope that I have that the of the artistic intent of the author, authorial intent, I should say, that the author or the creator of the game or book or whatever ultimately knows or has, I guess, uh, a better understanding of what it is they're creating and what the actual narrative is and what the implications are and all this kind of stuff. And while I agree that everything is open to interpretation and that's part of the fun of being a reader or or a game player, I've always believed and I still, I think, believe to some degree that still the creator has more um, intelligence behind it, and therefore their word means more than than other people's other people's observations. And that was one of those instances where, while it's true that he d- he might not know truly what happens to Molly because the game itself is designed to not know what happens to Molly, I, I have a hard time believing that there's not a kernel of of why he did what he did. You know, why have her eat berries if you didn't want the player to think that maybe she was just poisoned or something like that? I don't know. It's it's weird. It's 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 a arbitrary hurdle, and it's one that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense mentally. Um, but it is a hurdle that I'm going to have to com- continue to wrestle with. And there's a few more uh, examples of this that I want to get into in a little bit as well. But before I do, I kind of want to ask, like, how do you feel on that idea that if it that of of a creator saying, "I don't know." I think, especially in a in a game like this or a story like this, where so much of it is influenced by the connection that the reader or the player or the listener comes to with it, where it's almost intended to be a think piece, right? It's almost intended to be uh, a story that makes you think on different levels, on deeper levels, and um, think in ways that you don't normally think. Like, for, for someone who hadn't just dove into, uh, you know, family trees or looking into their own family history, those parts of the game may not jump out at you and you may not read into different portions of the game that deal with those in the ways that I did. So I think in a game or story, especially like this one, I find it a lot easier to believe that the storyteller is 
doesn't have all the answers. And I kind of like that he doesn't have all the answers, frankly, or that he's not willing to divulge the answers. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I, I have sort of a romanticism that he he isn't just trying to, you know, hide the ball and, and not give away the the secrets so that, you know, people can continue talking like, you know, talking about things like this. I, I've always been someone who enjoys mystery and someone who enjoys unanswered questions and keeping them unanswered. You know, it'd be just, just recently in the news, in the last week and a half or so, uh, it's come out that scientists had actually found Amelia Earhart's bones, you know, like several years after her crash and they didn't mm. they dismissed them because they thought that it was a, a the bones of a of a male and so they basically just been sitting in in a cabinet in you know some uh scientist's lab for you know 50 60 70 years however long it's been and now they went back and restudied them and said oh yeah these are these are actually they're 99% certain that they're the bones of Amelia Earhart so i think for so long, the whole story of Amelia Earhart and and the the vanishing of of her and her co-pilot and plane has really been um, a mainstay of of American history and the history of aviation. And knowing that now we know that oh well we've had them all along and it was just kind of a, a mistake of mistaken misidentity and that all of the stories that have sprung up about. Um, just all of the crazy things like she was a prisoner of the Japanese or she was spying on the Russians or, you know, just, just, there's a whole host of stories that people had sprung up about the vanishing of Amelia Earhart. And you have that in so many different topics that are unexplained. And I, I think that that drives my creative juices more than actually knowing the answer. I would agree for some of that. The part I would challenge you on though is the difference between a curated story, um, one that was curated with intent, and then something that was kind of out of people's control. So example for the Amelia Earhart thing, I mean, that was a real life thing that happened. But here we do have an actual set of creators, a team of designers, a team of people working to create a narrative um, that they sort of, uh, that, that from my perspective, and this isn't just on on, on uh, Giant Sparrow and, and Ian's team, um, from my perspective, you know, there I, I feel like there are some more answers there that I, I really want to get out from. And maybe this has to do with, and this is going to be sort of my, reveal some of my like egotism, I guess. Um, maybe it has to do with just as I was growing up, learning to write uh, in college, you know, studying fiction and all this kind of stuff. Far too often, I had, there were student writers who would create something that was objectively bad and objectively not a good story. Um, it had loose ends because they were terrible writers. It had uh, questions unanswered because they were terrible writers. Um, and they would say, no, it's up to the reader to determine what's going on there. When it was very obvious that this person just can't write. Now, that's obviously not the case with with uh, Giant Sparrow because the team can obviously write. Uh, Ian can obviously write and, and it looks great. Um, and maybe it's just a little, there's still some sting from that where it's just, uh, it, it, I, 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 I guess I have to, I, I'm, I, I'm on the edge of is it intentionally vague or is it laziness? And in this case, I think it's intentionally vague. There's, there's no, I, I know it's intentionally vague. There's no laziness about this game at all. It's awesome. Uh, but I think there's just some burn, some carryover from college that's probably I'm, I'm having to wrestle with. So thank you, therapist. <laughs> that's fair. And I think I, I'm probably coming at it from with, colored with my background as a historian as well, mm -hmm. where I, I, the, the stories I tend to like the most are ones that 
mimic real life where the answers are not all fed to you and may not even exist. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, so the other thing I wanted to touch on too was the idea that, uh, and I touched on this a little bit during the during the conversation with Ian as well, that um, I... I <laughs> I, I look into things a lot. I try to uh, make, uh, as human creatures, you want to categorize things and you want to sort of make sense of the world. That's what we do. And I will try to make sense of certain design choices and there certain things about the game that it turns out were just created because of technical limitations or because the team was just good at something. So the example I mentioned in the interview was about the the light, um, the transition of using lights to transition from one scene to another, and that I thought that meant something. And really it was, no, I think the guys are just, the people who did, did the programmers are just good at lights. Um, and so the, and the idea that um, the other one I mentioned toward the end of the interview um, was the idea that could I look perhaps at Edith's situation as her being the the victim of rape? Um, because I was thinking, you know, why have a male child that Edith had as opposed to a female child? Because I'm always asking, you know, why didn't they do this? Why didn't this author do this? Why didn't this artist do this? Um, and the the conclusion I came to was because I thought, you know, if it was a if it was a male, that person would unfortunately. Um, have more control over the progeny. Uh, and so and he kind of shot that down um, as he should. Um, and uh, and so it's those types of things where I realize it's 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 not an artistic choice sometimes. Sometimes it's more of just a practical choice. But I can see artistry in the practical and often, and sometimes that's disheartening to know. Um, other times it's sort of exciting because it means that I can find connections in there that other people prob- maybe maybe don't look at. And some people do say that, you know, the, the source of creativity is finding connections where other people don't find those connections. So I have to I, I, I try to make myself feel better when I can't when, when uh, I'm, I'm, I'm met with a, a distinct no, Caleb, you're wrong. But well, and I think another another aspect of that or example of that, I guess I should say, was crawling through the doggy door right into the garage and not being able to go back and and go out like you I went through the doggy door without ever exploring <laughs> the porch without I never found the slide that you just mentioned um, so when I saw the the scene that you know oh well, uncle so and so was killed when a dragon fell on him well they should have just said it was a or she could have also said it was a slide I was sort of <laughs> I was very confused by that I was like what the heck was he building what I want to know more and I never I never got to that stage because I couldn't go back outside and I definitely am one who would go in and explore and if I get to a door then I'll go and explore all the things that I hadn't found yet just in case I get locked out. And in, of course, in that instance, I thought I was doing that and got locked out and <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's interesting is because had I had I tried to leave the doggy door, which I didn't um, the first time I played it, um, I didn't try to leave. But had I tried to leave it, I think my brain probably would have tried to find a reason for it. Why wouldn't they let me escape? And I don't think my brain first would have went toward, well, it was a streaming situation. It was a way to maintain the garbage collector of, of the of the um, programming process. So I, I don't think I would have thought that because it, I think we're in a great time of video games mm-hmm. where everything feels possible. Yep. So I have to think there's a reason they wouldn't let you out there. It's not because it's technical limitations. There's a reason they didn't do that. Um, and then it's conversations like this with Ian when I realized, no, we still do have limitations. It's just that there are developers out there and designers and and, and uh, 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 directors that are so good at what they do that they can sort of make you believe that anything is possible. Yeah, that floored me. That that I was not expecting to hear either and really sort of drew me in and um, made me start thinking about 
games more in a technical sense because mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. You think, uh, you know, you think all the way back to Mario and the reason why you couldn't go left is because the game has already gotten rid of that bit of memory. Um, so it couldn't rebuild it, you know, and at the time that was such a at the time Mario Super Mario Brothers was such a leap in game dumb that you didn't think through it. But today, if you were given a 2D platformer and not able to go backwards, you would have to think there's a reason for this. Why can't I do this? Um, and, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what that reason would be. I don't know why a game developer would do that other than trying to trying to do nostalgia. But, um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, do you think this game how, how do you think this game contributes to uh, just the idea of narrative adventures or walking simulators? I mean, do you think it'll have any lasting impact? And and I guess I should ask, like, what's kind of your familiarity with narrative adventures and, and, and walking simulators? I haven't played many walking simulators I, in the modern sense. Um, you know, things like um, Dear Esther or you know, this walk, What Remains of Edith Finch is really, I would probably consider my first one outside of Colot. You know, the these <laughs> couple of minutes I played Colot. But I did, I used to play a lot of the computer adventure games, things like Myst, things like... Um, space um king's quest and and space quest things like that that some of those sierra games of 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 old and really enjoyed those so that's kind of what i thought of when i was playing what remains of edith finch is kind of those point and click adventure games um and it really felt like that because it was uh you mentioned in the interview that it is sort of a linear story and that plays around the edges with being able to explore different things and and i thought ian it was an interesting tech discussion as well when ian was talking about how they hid similar takes on the same story plot lines in different places so that you wouldn't necessarily Mm -hmm. have to feel like you were going to going searching out the the hot key in each given room that it would just come to you naturally as you sort of turned around because it was nestled in so many different places that could trigger it um and so i guess i think this is part of i i and maybe this is true of the the walking simulator in general which is my limited experience with them but maybe part of a greater renaissance of the pure adventure game in general and I'm a, I'm I'm a big fan of story in games. You know, I, our last episode was all about how story in games is. If you say that gaming games are better without story, you're and you're asinine. Um, <laughs> and so it, that's why adventure games had always appealed to me because that was one place that you could definitely go and experience a story, experience narrative in the early days of computing when there was very little of that being done. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I, I don't have as much familiarity with the uh, adventure games of yore. Um, so Myst, I've never played. King's Quest games, I've never played. Um, definitely familiar with their platforms, though, and I can definitely see how that would work. And I wonder if at some point they will be pretty much indistinguishable. You know, I mean, I think the adventure games of the, of the past were probably limited from a technical perspective, and that's why they mm-hmm. kind of had to have, you know, in some cases, the single screen pre-rendered sort of background kind of thing. I think Mist was like that, right? Yep. Like the actual yep. environment didn't move too much. And so if you just add moving environments to it, that's kind of what you have with um, a game like What Remains of Edith Finch. To some degree, Firewatch, though Firewatch had fewer puzzles. It was more of just an experience kind of thing. So I think as more puzzles become part of the walking sim, 
um, they're probably, it'll just sort of congeal and become a, it will become a true uh, resurgence of the um, adventure game. So I, I look forward to it. I love uh, the walking simulator genre. It's it's quick. Uh, they're easy. They're beautiful. And I can think deeply about them and be wrong most of the time, which are, those are some of my favorite things to do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was some of the, just the, the writing in it, I thought was really well done. I think like, she when when Edith is walking out the in the backyard, walking toward the cemetery, and she flashes back to um, the the memory that the first thing her family did upon arriving on the island was build a cemetery. <laughs> you know, the, and and she says, "What kind of a family finishes building a cemetery before starting a house?" And <laughs> yeah, I think another one was. Um, Maybe we believed so much in the family curse that we made it real, and mm-hmm. that one is—it's almost like a, a getting getting back. We we I touched on this during our conversation on Odin Sphere and on the Cartridge Club podcast this month. That it's almost like a game wrestling with the question of of uh, free will versus predeterminism. You know, what do the things that we do to ward off fate just fake make fate that much more inevitable? Or do you know, do we really have control? Well and that probably speaks also to, like I said earlier, the human nature to to organize and categorize things because even if uh you do have free will um, or, or no matter where you stand on the free will versus, uh, you know, not free will argument, um, you are going to see the connections there because that's what the human mind has to do. The human mind thrives on the stimulus of, of, of connecting things and making things make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's arguments to say that that's sort of the source of religion to some degree, and I'm not going to use this as a platform to talk either way on that, but that is one of the arguments is that, you know, when, when society doesn't understand fire, uh, well, let's let's chalk that one up to God. When a society doesn't understand the wind, let's chalk that one up to God. Um, so it's possible that you know human beings they just have to create sense out of things, and so um, I think that that probably you know I, I, yeah that probably makes sense. Um, the the game you know speaking of the you you had a couple lines there that were from the game uh, that were really good. I that was impressive to me too. You know, as as a writer myself, like I really enjoyed the text. Part of me fears the use of too much text because text is such a very specific conscious choice to use text in a game like this that any other game now that tries to use text in a similar way is automatically going to be called a copycat it's not like you can like uh use the color blue and then every other game that uses the color blue is a copycat blue is a very (laughs) tangible thing or you know it's very uh, nebulous but text is a very definite choice there's a reason for that choice and it has a very specific aesthetic um but i think the game used text in a really really way and i'm glad this was the kind of game to to do it in this way uh but the writing itself yeah it definitely can't go unsaid how great the writing is and in a sense of pacing with the writing as well and i don't Mm -hmm. know if this can be chalked up to the um to the voice actress or if it can be chalked up to the writing i'm not really sure how that works probably equal parts to the the writing ian dallas and the voice actress but um, there's, I remember there's one line, I think the first line that sort of arrested me and I was like, wow, this, this game knows what it's doing is when she walks from, when you walk from the kitchen into the, uh, the, the entryway, the foyer, and she says, you know, this house, it, it, the house is something about like the house isn't wrong or it's not too big. It's not, it's not cr- strange. It's just, it's she described it as a mouth with too many teeth Mm, mm -hmm. and she just sort of and she paused right before she said it and she let that line alone stand by itself 
and really sort of take up the room. And that was a, such a smart move to let that one line just stay there. Um, and that happened kind of repeatedly. You know, it was not overdone. Uh, they knew how to make the beats work. And I really thought that was something special. One of the cool scenes that sticks out in my mind about their use of the text in, in a visual way and tying into the gameplay was during the Gus vignette when you're playing as Uncle Gus mm. and it's the kite scene where he's out back on the on the beach and they're having the wedding and the storm comes up and it almost turns into the game sort of morphs itself into a Katamari-esque text collector where you use the kite to you know go back and forth across the sky and knocking over the the text and wadding up the text and it almost follows you along like a like a building you know a building hurricane um, and then ultimately, that's what knocks over the, the the tent where 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 all the wedding party is. That ultimately ends up with you know Gus's demise. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that was a great one. Um, you know, and what really what hit me just now was you were describing that. Is uh, my first thought was if you're a family who has this curse, why would you have? Why would you let your kid fly a kite? on a stormy night and why, <laughs> and why would you have your wedding like on the shore of an ocean where surely there's going to be waves and a tide and all this kind of stuff. And then that got me thinking like in every situation throughout the house, there's no, no one takes the, takes the, uh, no one tries to protect the family. Like there's, it's not like there's padding wrapped around all the staircases and stuff. You know, you would think that a family that was so wary of being killed at any point would try to protect things and wouldn't have wouldn't have half of their house built up on stilts up above the house <laughs> yeah. and you know building it like a uh, a Babylonian tower. <laughs> You're right, and so I wonder. If, first of all, that's something I'll probably think a little bit more on to see if there's. A, of course, there's probably a technical reason for it. See, I'm already telling myself that there's a reason <laughs> for it outside of story, uh, but that's something I'll probably think about a little bit more because. You know, one part of me says that a family that believes in a curse the way that they do is probably not a family that's going to be mentally all there anyway. So they might just not even that might just not even be important or they're just so uh, they're so they acknowledge the curse so much that they're just willing to just let it happen when it's supposed to happen. You know, kind of thing. It's interesting. What was the most affecting uh, story that you played? Um, I think it was probably uh is this where you reveal that you didn't actually play the game? No, I'm trying to think which one it was. Uh, Lewis, I think, mm-hmm. where he, he Edith gets to the room and his room, you know, it looks like uh, you know uh, your typical stoner room. He's got the the bong or the the bong sitting there. He's got the the hash pipe. He's got the the legalized pot poster on the wall. And she's like, oh, you know, this is a this is a still smells like Lewis or whatever when she walks in. Um, and then the, I think it was so, it, it stuck with me so much, not because of the story of Lewis and uh, how he came to be who he was and how he sort of descended into his end, but just the gameplay mechanics of it. And mm-hmm. your Lewis ends up working at the, the fish cannery and his job is basically to just, behead the fish and throw them onto the the conveyor belt um for processing and he sort of feels like the job is beneath him and that is his life is going off the rails a little bit and so in order to cope with his monotonous you know 
non-intellectual job. He comes up with this this fantasy world and slowly, slowly descends where the fantasy world becomes his world and the real world is left behind as just a, a almost a figment of his imagination. And the gameplay just progresses from you moving the fish under the, the beheading machine and moving it forward, just this monotonous, even the control, you just sort of feel the monotony. You move the control to the left, grab the fish, move the control to the right, hold, behead it, push the control forward onto the conveyor belt, left, right, forward, left, right, forward. You just get into this rhythmic mindless waltz with the controller and you can just feel the identification with lewis's need for escape into something more slowly this this other world kind of creeps into the screen it starts out with just this little top-down kind of maze game and then it slowly expands not only in not only does it expand in complexity of going from a top-down you know really almost atari 2600 style game it could advancing in complexity to almost like a river raid type game to a platformer type game to a role-playing type game but it slowly as it does evolve in complexity it also evolves and takes over more and more of the screen and slowly the left right forward left right forward just sort of fades into the background until you feel like lewis you've lost that part of yourself and you're completely invested in this other world this other story that's going on that was the story that really, I, I, as I was playing it, as I finished that story, I, I palpably paused it and thought, wow, that was really well done. <laughs> oh, man, that was one of the best. And I think that's one of the ones that gets a lot of press for the, from this game. And, and I think probably overshadows some of the rest of the game because that's, that's the one that definitely affects people a lot. The other ones are not nearly as, I would say they're not nearly as complex and they don't necessarily use the controller to to a similar way, with the exception of maybe being Calvin's story. He's the kid on the swing, mm-hmm. um, because when you're placed in this, you're, you're you're sitting in a swing, and you don't really you're not giving any instructions at all, and so you just start moving the analog sticks, and you realize those kind of move your legs, and your first reaction is you want to get off of the swing, but you can't. So you have to learn to actually time your 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 legs, your pumps to get yourself going higher and higher and higher. And it's just cool because it almost, it really does put you in the position of like learning how to swing as a kid, learning how to actually swing, which was, which was kind of a really cool idea. Um, I think the one that got me the most, um, and this is likely because I have children and that's Gregory's story, the baby. Um, that one was just, it, that one tore me up because, uh, you know, it starts out with you're, 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 you play as a child, you're in a bathtub mm-hmm. and you overhear your parents or what you presume are your parents saying, you know, gosh, I just don't know what Gregory's always laughing about in there, you know? And so they, they are off to their own things and you're in the bath playing and all your toys in the bathtub are coming alive and singing and there's, it's, there's this music and you as the baby are laughing. And so you get the idea that a child in real life, because children in real life do laugh for no reason at all. Um, you get the idea that like, oh, this would be kind of what it's like as a child. Like everything is really fun and magical and musical. Um, and ultimately, you know, this is a story where every character dies. So ultimately you have to sort of play a baby's death. And that's tough. It's not gruesome or anything, so I don't want to turn people off from it. Um, but it is it is tough. Um, and and it, but it was it was it was I was not expecting it. Um, all of the rest of the characters have been older, have been, you know, uh, just you know, or at least teenaged age. So this one really came out of nowhere, I thought was kind of it was really impactful there. 
there's one more theme that I just want to touch on that it sort of hit me while listening to Ian talk about the use of the different books and what the reason was for the different types of books being put into the game. And he mentioned that the cookbooks were there to kind of suggest the fact that you're going through something that's been lived in and something that's um, you know real and that life once existed here, right? Because it is so desolate and so empty and quiet. But then part of what I found when I was playing the game that kept tugging at me was that it had been clear it was clear from the narrative that the house had sort of been empty for quite some time and abandoned for quite a while but yet when Edith shows up and when Edith is going through the house it looks like there's n- it looks like they may have may they would have just left the house last night right mm-hmm. it, it looks exactly the same there's there's nothing nothing dilapidated about it there's nothing run down there's nothing vandalized there's nothing that would indicate the presence of outside life whatsoever encroaching on the house and as i kept playing through the game and getting further and further into the story that weirdness that i felt is almost started out as a well this is it almost took me out of the game a little bit and Mm. took me out of the story but then as i continued to play it became clear that it, it was almost intentional showing how the family how reclusive the family was how insular the family was and when ian talked about the use of the the homeschooling books and how he mentioned that word insular and he mentioned Mm. how the homeschooling was intended to not only emphasize edith's mother as uh, a teacher and uh, an instructor of the children but it also conveyed that Everything they needed was in this house. They didn't need to go out into the world at large, and the world at large didn't need to come to them. And really the only sort of experience you see throughout the game of the world outside coming to them is in the uh, the story of Barbara, the, the child star, who yeah. you know had the, the comic book and had the the big childhood success. And then also her story at her, her end was, you know, a, a, the comic book story where it's the, the boyfriend from school and everything else was sort of just the family, just, uh, insular to the, the, um, the core characters. Yeah. I think the only other sort of recurring visitor would have been the Chinese restaurant that delivered. I think at, at the very beginning they said, uh, you know, no other restaurant would deliver to them except for this one Chinese place. Um, so I think there's probably like a, a mystery about the house that probably kept vandals away because even vandals are probably scared a little bit of it. Um, it also does seem just so far out in the out in the woods that it would be tough to get to. And I, I, I got the sense, too, that it wasn't it wasn't quite as long uh, that it's been abandoned because I because I, she's 17 when she comes back. And I, it sounds like uh, they play an audio clip from like the last dinner and she sounds competent enough and articulate enough to probably be like in her early teens. So I was thinking it was really only, you know, a few years, but um, I think it could be, but even a few years, yeah, you'll probably see some level of, you know, the front, the grass in the front lawn being quite a bit taller than it was or something like that. But Or even some form of, of, of you know, vandalism or whatever it may be, whether it's broken windows might not be vandalism, but just, you know, the, the it's on the coast, you've got storms, you've got all this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but I think too, 
going deeper into this isolation and this house being sort of its own, uh, almost its own plane of existence was going back to Ian again in, in the, the converse, your conversation with him, he talked about, he brought up Lovecraft and mm-hmm. a lot of the Lovecraftian stories, sort of the setting is this set apart place where it's sort of exists outside of the rest of the world and is, is the end, the, the entirety of, of existence. And there's no way to and from it. That, and I, I definitely had that feeling when I was playing through. I, I thought he's, very early on in the interview, he brought up Lovecraft, and that, that definitely struck a chord with me. <laughs> yeah, for you, Lovecraft, for me, Borges. And, uh, yeah, I, I was in love as soon as he said Borges. Um, but, yeah, uh, so I I think it's probably time to, to maybe uh, round it out. What do you think? Yeah, I think we have uh, we have explored everything that's left of Edith Finch. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so nothing remains of Edith Finch is what you're trying Not to say. A thing. <laughs> well, I uh, I hope this uh, was ha- good for you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, let us know. Uh, send us. You know, we'll we'll list our uh, our places to to contact us here in a, a couple seconds. But definitely let us know what you think of this format. Did you like the interview itself? Did you like the conversation after the interview? Um, what kind of people would you like for us to talk to in the future? If if you did enjoy this type of thing, and if we decided that we wanted to continue doing doing this, um, you can find us uh, collectively at uh, mastersofunlocking.com. That'll list all of the social profiles, but specifically those are Twitter, uh, at Twitter, that's at M-O-U podcast, um, Facebook forward slash Masters of Unlocking, Instagram.com forward slash Masters of Unlocking. You can find Scott at VG Collectaholic on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash VG Collectaholic, VG Collectaholic.com, Instagram.com forward slash VG Collectaholic. And you can find me, um, as Caleb J. Ross pretty much everywhere. So at Caleb J. Ross on Twitter, CalebJRoss.com. Um, just any profile that's called Caleb J. Ross is probably mine. I'm most active on Twitter and on the YouTubes. Uh, so thank you so much for listening and go read a book, damn it. <laughs> and <laughs> once again, big thanks to Ian Dallas for coming on and and what a what a great interview. Great job, Caleb. That was that was a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much. We'll see you next time on episode 18 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast.